the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is Cornerstone Connection, the radio ministry of Pastor Gary Hamrick of Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. Pastor Gary is teaching through Romans. Real love is calling, listen, truth opens up your eyes. Mercy is waiting for you with every sunrise. Everybody understand this? It was not as if God looked at us and said, man, what a wonderful person. He looked at us and said, what terrible sinners, because that's who we are by nature. But he demonstrates his love for us in that while we were still sinners, he offers his son Jesus to die for us. Now, how many of you would be willing in some way to sacrifice your child on behalf of another person? And especially on behalf of someone who was wicked and evil. And that's what God did for us. God looked down on us in our sin and decided to give an unthinkable offering to save us. How many parents would give their child to save even one person, let alone all people? In today's message, Pastor Gary will remind you of the incredible sacrifice that God made. Not only did God the Father have to watch His Son Jesus be mercilessly beaten and murdered, Jesus had to endure it. He felt every whip, every hit, and every agonizing breath that he took on the cross for you. At the close of Pastor Gary's message today, I'll be sharing with you how you can get a copy of today's broadcast of Cornerstone Connection. Subscribe to the podcast or get in touch with us. But for now, let's join Pastor Gary in the book of Romans chapter 4 with today's edition of Cornerstone Connection. You know, how tragic that, that someone's hope of heaven is linked to their ability or inability to be a good person that day. You need to be free from that, and you need to realize what the Bible says, which is that we come to be reconciled to God, not through our good works. And we're made righteous in God's sight, not because we deserve it, or not because we're a good person, or not because we've earned it, but it is all on the basis of faith, where you exercise faith, which is a trust in what God says, concerning our condition, which is sinful, and the remedy to our condition, which is that Jesus Christ died on the cross, Jesus paid for it all, Jesus did for us what we could not do, that is why he said it is finished, you can't improve upon it, you can't do anything to further it, all you can do is receive it, believe it, accept it, and be saved. Isn't that good news? Amen? And so because of what Christ has done, his finished work means we don't have to work. We cannot work, we cannot strive, we cannot be a good enough person to gain God's good favor. God determined, you will be righteous in my sight, you will be good enough in the sense of being made righteous, simply because you accept what my son has done on your behalf. And to accept what my son has done on your behalf means that you exercise faith, not not the demonstration of works. Now listen, works follow faith, do they not? 
That's what James says. Faith without works is dead because once we accept by faith what Christ has done, we want to do good things as a demonstration of the fruitfulness of our faith. But it is not works that leads faith. It is faith that leads works. And works simply is a demonstration of the fruitfulness of our faith. Okay, But it is all faith. It is believing and accepting by faith of what Christ has done for us on the cross. His finished work. So Paul says it is not earned. Paul said it is, it is not limited to the Jews. He goes on to say also in verse 13, it's point number three. He says, and it is not gained through the law, through a bunch of rules. Just do this and do that, and then you'll be good to go. Verse 13, he says, it was not through the law that Abraham and his offspring received the promise that he would be heir of the world, but through the righteousness that comes by what? Faith. For if those who live by law are heirs, faith has no value and the promise is worthless because law brings wrath. And where there is no law, there is no transgression. And what does that mean? Where there's no law, there's no transgression. Okay, so what, what is, what's the speed limit on Sicklin Road? What is it? Anybody know? 35. 35. <laughs> yeah. Some of you don't know, do you? So if there was no speed limit sign that said 35 and you just could drive however you jolly well want, which is what some of you do anyway, but for the purpose of illustration, go with me. If there was no sign that said the speed limit is 35 and you're just doing whatever you want, then there's no transgression, is there? Because there's no law. So if there's no sign that marks and defines what is right and what is wrong, you can do whatever you want, then there's no transgression. That's what he means. He says, now, you introduce the law, now we know who the lawbreakers are. Because if you have the law, then you can understand if you're within the law or, or if you're outside of the law. And so he says, you know, that's, that's, that's the problem with the law in the sense that because the law is there, it's going to be a constant reminder that you don't measure up, you don't do what is right according to the law, so you're going to be condemned. He says, how hopeless is that? If the law is your hope, that's hopeless in the sense that it's going to be a constant reminder that you're a lawbreaker. It's going to be a constant reminder that you and I are lawbreakers. When we put our lives up against the standard of God, against his law, against his word, it's a constant reminder that we're lawbreakers. So when the law is introduced, it defines what a lawbreaker is. Now we're mindful of that. Now how do you overcome that? I mean, if we're all lawbreakers before God, we're all doomed and we're all destined to hell and we're all going to be you know, com- completely lost because we're all lawbreakers. Thus he says... Salvation is not gained through the law because you can't be made more righteous by obeying the law. All the law's going to do is make you more aware of just how unrighteous you are. So he says, okay, we, we need something else besides the law. Though the standard of God is not to be just like done away with. The standard of God reflects his holiness, reflects his character, reflects his standard. But at the same time, it's a reminder to us we don't measure up. He says, don't, don't use the law as like some basis for your righteousness, because that just simply is going to expose just how unrighteous you are. So he says, um, verse 16, therefore the promise comes by faith. He says, we got to have something more than, than just the standard to make us aware that we don't measure up. He says, okay, the promise, promise of salvation, comes by faith, so that it may be by grace and may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring, not only to those who are of the law, like the Jews, but also to those who are not of, rather, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham. So 
that, that speaks about the Gentiles. So he says it's, it's not just for those who are people of the law, which is the Jew, but it is also people who are of the faith of Abraham. So if you exercise faith in a similar way like Abraham exercised faith, then the promise is for you as well. Now, don't get hung up here at this point and say, well, wait a minute, Abraham didn't put his faith and trust in Jesus, so what kind of faith? Why do we want Abraham's faith? The argument he's making here is that he wants Jew and Gentile to realize that the bottom line is faith. So he says, Abraham had to exercise faith, albeit faith in a system that pointed to Jesus. New Testament requires faith too, now in the finished work of Christ. So whether you read Old Testament or New Testament, it really is still all about faith. Faith in God's gracious provision for your salvation. Now in the Old Testament, people were made positionally righteous temporarily because they exercised faith by believing what God says when he said, I want you to sacrifice animals, a life for your life. When, when you accept by faith a life for your life, then you'll be made temporarily righteous until the full revelation of Christ. So that's how people before the cross were made temporarily righteous. And by the way, then, how did they get to heaven if that was all before Christ? Well, when they die, they go to Sheol. It's a Hebrew word for Hades, the Greek word, or hell. But that doesn't mean, don't think of hell exclusively like a place of torment because Before Jesus dies on the cross, hell was divided into two parts. Luke 16 is a parable that speaks about it. The one side of hell was the place of torment. The other side of hell was the place of paradise. The place of paradise was the place where all those under the Old Covenant, under the Old Testament, who believed God through the sacrificial system of animals, that's where their souls would go until they could have access to heaven. You couldn't have access to heaven until Christ died on the cross but they could be temporarily made righteous so that their souls would go to the place of paradise on that half of the side of Hades until Christ Jesus could be revealed. What happens when Jesus dies? He's buried. Three days later, he rose from the dead. Where was his soul during the three days? He went to the paradise side of Hades. Remember he said to the thief on the cross, when that one thief said, surely you are the son of God, he said, well, today you will be with me in paradise. So he visits that place of paradise by his spirit. He empties the place of paradise, ushers then those who were temporarily made righteous because of the animal sacrificial system. Now they're made righteous because they believe in the one whom the sacrifice is pointed to. He empties the paradise side of Hades, ushers them into heaven. And now only the torment side of Hades exists. So it is true that now the definition of Hades or hell is a place of torment because that's all that's there now. The paradise side has been emptied. Now, we don't go there today. If you die now, since you know Christ as Savior, since the cross, nobody goes to paradise. You go directly to be with the Lord. Your spirit does. That's why Paul said to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So paradise side is empty now. Ever since Christ emptied it, and led the captives out, ushered them to heaven. But what Paul is saying here in terms of the law and in terms of uh, being a Jew and in terms of earning it, he says, it's, it's always been faith. It still is faith. It was either temporarily a provisionally given righteousness under the old covenant, or it is now eternal righteousness through the new covenant because of what Christ has done for us. But it's always been faith. 
Even under the old covenant system, it was faith. So he says here, verse 17, As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. He is our father, Abraham, in the sight of God, in whom he believed, the God who gives life to the dead and calls things that are not as though they were. Isn't that a great verse? God who gives life to the dead and calls things that are not as though they were. Let me explain it further because he clarifies it here. Look at verse 18. He says, against all hope, Abraham in hope believed and so became the father of many nations. Just as it has been said to him, so shall your offspring be. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead since he was about a 100 years old and that Sarah's womb was also dead. She was 90. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. This is why it was credited to him as righteousness. The words it was credited to him were written not for him alone, but also for us to whom God will credit righteousness for us who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. All right, so here I just kind of put this paragraph here to explain the example of Abraham between those last verses we just read, 18 to 25. Here's what he's basically saying. In the same way God gave life to Abraham's seed because of Abraham's faith, though his body was as good as dead. God gives life to us by faith through Jesus Christ, though we are dead in our trespasses and sins. That's the example he's basically saying. He's saying, look, you know, Abraham became the father of many nations. Through Abraham's seed comes Isaac, and then comes Jacob, and then the whole race of the Jewish people. But Abraham was 100 years old, and Sarah was 90, kind of past your prime. No offense to anyone in the group here who might be 100 or 90, but kind of past your prime. And so for the fact that they actually were able to conceive at the age of 190 is evidence that this was a God thing, and this was not just biologically normal here. This is something that God did miraculously through them. So he says, in effect, Abraham's body was dead. It was past the ability here. But because God is faithful to his promise, he saw things that were dead as if they really were. And that's the way God sees us all, not just in who we have been, but in who we shall be in him. And he makes our lives alive, just like he took a dead life of Abraham, who physically was incapable of reproducing, and he provided through him a miracle through which a whole race of people came. So he brought life out of that which was dead, and he'll do the same thing in our lives. Even though we are dead in our sins and trespasses, that's the way the Bible describes our condition before Christ. He says he makes us alive in him and takes our dead lives and makes us alive in Christ. Let's, let's go through a chapter 5 as far as we can. Maybe we'll even get through it in the, next, in the next 10 minutes here. So chapter 5. So therefore, okay, and, and in Bible school they always teach you, whenever you see the word therefore, there's an easy way to remember it. You need to look at it and say, what's it there for? It is therefore because it is a bridge word to connect the previous argument with where he's going now. And he's going to talk here in chapter 5 about our standing in Christ. He says, verse 1, therefore, since we have been 
justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. Okay, this is our position here. We, we stand in Christ. Now, I just want to again remind us of, I, I shared this definition with you last week, but just worth remembering here because again, Romans is full of some uh, pretty complex words. So justification, he talks here at the end of chapter four and first verse of chapter five. He says, since we have been justified, okay, and I, and I said an easy way to remember that word is like just as if I'd never sinned because justification is the legal and formal acquittal from guilt by God as judge and his pronouncement on us as righteous in his sight. That's what justification means. And then, of course, also there in verse 2 is the word grace. So grace is God's unearned, undeserved favor. And again, as many of you know, the word grace can also be remembered as an acronym, G-R-A-C-E, God's riches at Christ's expense. So it is what God has bestowed upon us, though it is undeserved and, and unearned on our part. It is his favor towards us. So, so in verse 1 and 2, again, Paul says we've been justified, okay, we've been acquitted by God, made right before him. And therefore, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. He says, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Now look at this, verse 3. Not only so, but we also rejoice in our sufferings. Wait, what? Not only so, but we also rejoice in our sufferings. Notice, because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character hope. And hope does not disappoint us because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. Very strong language here. And most of us don't like to think about rejoicing in our sufferings. But Paul says, here is the result of if we persevere, what suffering produces. Perseverance perseverance produces character in our lives and character produces hope. And he says, and hope does not disappoint us because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. Now, by the way, you can write in the margin of your Bible, James chapter 4, sorry, James chapter 1, verse 4. And I'll read it to you. You don't need to turn there. But very similar language James writes in, in James 1, uh, 4, 4 to, uh, sorry, verse 2 to 4. James 1, 2 to 4. He says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. And then further down in James 1.12, he says, Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial, because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. So, folks, the, there is a progressive good result to our trials and suffering if, if we will persevere. It is not to say that suffering and trials are um, necessarily things that we welcome. 
Uh, it is not that God delights in seeing us suffer, but he promises us that through suffering and through trials, if we persevere, it will accomplish a greater purpose in our life, and it will produce greater character, and it will produce a hope that is a hope that only comes from the Lord. And, and so Paul writes of it here in Romans 5, and James echoes it in James chapter 1. So let me go back again here to Romans 5, just read it again. He says, not only so, but we also rejoice in our sufferings, because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, character, hope. And hope does not disappoint us because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. He says here in verse 6, you see at just the right time when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man someone might possibly dare to die. He says this, look at verse 8, underline this, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Everybody understand this? It was not as if God looked at us and said, man, what a wonderful person. He looked at us and said, what terrible sinners. Because that's who we are by nature. But he demonstrates his love for us in that while we were still sinners, he offers his son Jesus to die for us. Now, how many of you would be willing in some way to sacrifice your child on behalf of another person? and especially on behalf of someone who was wicked and evil. And that's what God did for us. To make it possible so that we might be made righteous in his sight, he offers his son as a substitutionary sacrifice, replacing all the animal sacrifices of the old system. No longer does the blood of of an animal, a lamb or a goat, satisfy the wrath of God. That was a temporary thing until Christ could be revealed. Jesus, our Passover lamb, dies on a cross by his blood that is shed on the cross. And faith in him, we can now be made righteous before God. God offers his son for us, not because there's anything about us that was so right or wonderful or pure, but God offers his son for the wickedness of the world in order to redeem as many as who would want to by faith be saved. This, this is incredible. This is how he demonstrates his love for us. And in verse 9, since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more will we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. So that word has been used now three times in this last section. Reconciled, reconciled twice in verse 10, and reconciliation in verse 11. So let me just close out with with one more definition for you. So reconciliation is this, the restoration of friendship and relationship after estrangement. And in a biblical sense, it is gained for us with God through Jesus Christ. You know, we use that word in, in marriages sometimes when the marriages are having difficulty and a couple is separated and they get back together. They say we've reconciled. And it means the restoration of friendship and relationship. Okay, well, man's relationship and friendship with God was broken by sin. And so God determined to reconcile it 
by giving his son Jesus. That's how we're reconciled to God. And by faith in Jesus, now that friendship and that relationship is restored with God. We're so glad you joined us for this edition of Cornerstone Connection as we dig into the book of Romans. Isn't Paul's faith inspiring? Did you know you can download our mobile app and take Cornerstone Connection with you wherever you take your phone? That way you'll never miss a message from Pastor Gary's studies and you'll always have encouragement from God's Word right at your fingertips. Find a link to download the app for your iPhone or Android device on our website, cornerstoneconnection.cc. We'd love to meet you in person, too, at Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. Stop in for a service this Sunday at 8.30, 10, or 11.45 a.m., or join us for our Bible study and fellowship on Wednesdays at 7 p.m. Pastor Gary would love to shake your hand and answer any questions you may have about the study about Cornerstone Chapel, or about how you can have a relationship with God. Find out more at cornerstoneconnection.cc. You can listen to additional teachings from this study or read accompanying resources on our site as well. Just look under the Teachings tab. That's all we have for today, but join us next time to learn more from the Book of Romans right here on Cornerstone Connection. Got no place to go, but still you know, still you know you're not alone. General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.